to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we'll be this morning. Normally we are studying the book of Genesis for the Christmas season. We are going to put that on hold because we are now entering into the time of year that we call Christmas or Advent, as we Christians like to call it. It is that time of year when we turn our eyes to the birth of Jesus Christ. We anticipate, we prepare for Christmas Day. The idea of Advent may sound foreign to many of you. You might think that's a Catholic thing, but I assure you it's not primarily, nor is it even mainly a Catholic thing. The idea of Advent is many centuries old, and celebrating Advent as a fixed part of the Christian calendar goes way back to somewhere, I think, around the 4th century. The purpose of Advent is simply to prepare us properly for the significance of, Christ, of Christmas and to turn our focus, to turn our hearts and adoration to Jesus Christ as much as possible in this time of the year. See, we tend to fall into the trap of letting the Christian holidays just be another part of our life in a secular world. That's what most of us know. But as much as possible, it is good for us as Christians to bring those Christian holidays to the forefront and let them be prominent markers throughout our year. The observance of Advent, even if only to a small degree, I believe is more important today in our generation uh, than it has been in a very long time. A holiday season this time of year has been seriously hijacked, hasn't it? By our secular society. This season is dominated by sentimentalism and materialism. I just saw yesterday, I don't watch a whole lot of TV commercials, but I saw one yesterday that equated good news of great joy with the latest deal on smartphones. Now you laugh, but if there was a smartphone in your gift box at Christmas time, you'd be pretty excited, wouldn't you? But I thought, how empty, how useless that is. We don't need another smartphone. You hear me? <laughs> you don't need another smartphone. That's not what this season is about. And even as Christians, it is very easy for us to get distracted by the lights and the trees and the thoughts of home and jolly wintertime music and for some of you even hopes of snow. And we're going to expend much effort over the next few weeks in the celebration of Christmas. And that is okay. But it is far too easy for us to lose sight of Christ in the midst of it all, isn't it? And that's why celebrating Advent as a church, even in the small ways that we do, scripture readings, sermon series, 
a few Christmas events here and there, I think is so important. And I believe that observing Advent as a family in your homes is also important if you can do that. And so before we go any further, I did bring some resources that I think might be helpful to you. You say, it's already December 5th. It's too late to start Advent. No, it's not. All right. All right. You might be a little behind, but that's, that's no big deal. If you are looking for something, whether you have kids or not, this is not just about the children. Um, I have some resources up here that are simply daily readings, a few pages long, devotional readings for Advent, 25 of them in each book, one for each day of December until Christmas. And I would highly recommend any of this. My family and I are going through this one by Sinclair Ferguson called Love Came Down at Christmas. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 is the focus of, of his study, and it is outstanding so far, um, better than I expected it to be even, and uh, incredibly convicting. So wear steel-toed boots so your toes don't get stepped on too hard, um, and get ready to be blessed if you do this. I'm just going to leave these up here, and after the service, if you want to come look, uh, you can get any of these on Amazon, by the way, So uh, and that they come quickly, whatever. So these are here. Um, if you want to take a look and get some ideas for your family. I believe it is important. This time of year is a wonderful opportunity for us to remember the main thing when the world has no idea what it is. And when we remember Christ, and when we remember and recognize that all history is indeed His story, and that this holiday is His holiday, then all those details that tend to distract us from the gospel during the holidays will be put once again into their proper place. And we will remember and truly enjoy the true meaning of Christmas. And that is the story of the light of the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that has shined into this world so that all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved from their sins and find peace with God. That is the most important message every one of us needs to hear. And so our passage for this morning begins uh, a Christmas time Advent study that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. Our passage is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And here we find a prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ. A prophecy that was given around 700 years before it actually happened. And what we see from this prophecy makes clear that the birth of Jesus Christ was no ordinary birth. There is no other birth like the birth of Jesus. All human history pivots on this birth. Well, we actually have oriented our calendar according to the birth and life of Jesus. And all the prophecies concerning Jesus that we find in the Old Testament are fulfilled with pinpoint accuracy in such a way that no one could manufacture, much less a baby. This text in Isaiah chapter 9 lift, lifts Jesus Christ up. 
as the light shining in darkness, bringing salvation to all who believe. Let's look at this text. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. If you'll follow along as I read, some of this you will recognize, some of it maybe not. All of it, I pray, will be a blessing to you. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This passage uses imagery of light and the effects of light as a prophecy and a promise that a Savior will come who will overthrow the darkness of sin and give light to His people. Give the light of life to his people. This promised Savior is Jesus, who is the light of the world, who is, as we read in John 1, the light that has shined into darkness. And with that theme of light, with this theme of the light of Christ, we'll look at this passage in three stages or three sections this morning. I want us to see, first of all, the announcement of the light, and then we'll consider the effect of the light. And then we'll finish with the source of the light. This passage begins by announcing that light will come. That there will be a light that shines in the darkness and delivers God's people from their sin. But then it culminates by revealing who that light really is and calling us to look to Him and be saved. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see the announcement of the light. That is the introduction and proclamation of a light that will be given to those in darkness. Light's refreshing, isn't it? When you're stumbling around in the darkness, you turn on the light. It can be a shock at first, but it's refreshing. You can find where you're going. You can be protected from danger. Verses 1 and 2 announce that there will be a light that comes that delivers from darkness. 
Now, verse 1 is actually the last verse of chapter 8 in the Hebrew Bible, but it gives us some important context. It transitions us from chapter 8 into chapter 9, and it gives us the context and prepares us for the good news that is proclaimed in this passage. Verse 1 begins, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, that promise presupposes that there is gloom. And it is written to those who are experiencing the gloom. What is it? What is the gloom? What is the darkness? Who is experiencing it? Where did it come from? Well, the end of chapter 8 tells us that this gloom is speaking of the judgment of God on a people who have turned from God to idols. In fact, the text says it's a group of people, his own covenant people, who now prefer the muttering of witches and the visions of the dead rather than the revelation of the one true and living God. These are people who have turned away from what God has said and they are preferring idolatry. And the result is spiritual darkness. The absence of the light of God's revelation and God's presence. I have walked away from you, God says, and you are in darkness. But then there is a promise. There will come a time when you will no longer be in darkness. There will be a light that comes. And then the next phrase of verse 1 tells us what the effect of that darkness is that they are experiencing. In the former time, it says, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the the word contempt there is a reference to the judgment of God. And then by using the names Zebulun and Naphtali, Isaiah is referring to the tribes in the northern part of Israel. This is the part of the land of Israel that was conquered first by the foreign armies as they traveled south through the land. This was the land that was first plunged into defeat ultimately resulting in the entire nation going into captivity and slavery and spiritual darkness. And what a darkness it was. What a gloom it was. It would dominate the landscape of Israel for centuries. Not just through the Assyrian Empire first, but also through Babylon and through Rome and the rise of Greek humanistic philosophy and pagan idolatry and Judaistic legalism and much more, culminating at the end of the Old Testament in 400 years of silence until John the Baptist comes on the scene and announces the arrival of Christ. Now, it's important to understand that this passage, though, is not speaking merely of the nation of Israel. It's not speaking of just one nation at one point in time many years ago. This is speaking of God's saving intentions that are even greater and that involve the whole world. You see, ultimately, there is a greater darkness. There is a darkness that dominates and oppresses all people. In the very beginning of Scripture, if you go back to the creation, you read about creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and then immediately in chapter 3, you read about how sin entered into the world and how it plunged all creation and all people into darkness. That's what we were talking about this morning with the catechism. 
Adam, our representative, plunging the human race into sin. And the result of that was a curse from God that has affected all human beings and the rest of creation ever since. Ephesians chapter 2 elaborates on that by telling us that all people are by nature willing participants in sin. We are rebels against God, and as a result, we are doomed to eternal judgment. And then Romans chapter 3, verse 23, summarizes by saying, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Isaiah himself in chapter 53, verse 6, says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You see, Scripture is clear. This is who we are. That is the story of Scripture. That is the picture it paints of the human race. There is no neutral ground. There is no third option. If you have not looked to God alone for salvation from sin, then you are at this moment rejecting Him, and the result is spiritual darkness, blindness, condemnation. I know you may feel okay at the moment. You may feel like everything is just fine, but that's just it. Sin is, as it were, a cancer below the surface that sometimes you don't know about until it's too late. Sin is deceptive. Spiritual darkness is deceptive. It is the result of a sinful nature that blinds us to the reality of our sin and makes us irrational and causes us to think that everything is okay because we are going along with the rest of the world. And it makes us think that because God has not judged us to this point, He clearly won't judge us in the future. But the truth is, judgment is coming. And there has been enough evidence throughout human history to know God will not stand by and let sin go unpunished. Judgment is coming for all who are in the darkness and who are not in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. By nature, children of wrath, Paul says. That's you. That's me. But praise God, that is not the end of the story. We've only covered verse 1 so far. There is more. And this bad news is simply the backdrop that makes the good news so great. The rest of verses 1 and 2 speak of the hope of a light that is to come, that dispels the darkness and rescues those who are lost. The very first phrase of verse 1, in fact, is a promise that there will be no gloom for those who are currently in gloom. That there will be no darkness where there presently is darkness. And then again at the end of, verse, uh, of the verse, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Again, this is speaking of the northern part of Israel that was in such darkness. Isaiah is, as it were, looking down the corner of time, and he is seeing that though Israel was unfaithful, God would remain faithful. And there is a promise that there is coming a time when that dark land would be made glorious. The promise is looking forward 
to the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior sent by God to save His people from their sin. The Gospels in the New Testament introduce Jesus as a fulfillment of that prophecy, of that promise. That's why it's significant that He uses the word Galilee. How could Isaiah the prophet have known that a Messiah would come from Galilee? That is where Jesus began his ministry. That is where Jesus focused most of his time. That's where he called most of his disciples. This land in the northern part of Israel that had been the brunt of the blow of God's judgment in times past, was now in such spiritual darkness, but now was the first to receive the glorious light of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And then verse 2 goes on, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. See? No more gloom. The light has shone. Those who were in darkness have seen a great light. This is a wonderful pronouncement and proclamation of great hope that light has come to those who are in darkness. We like to talk about light at Christmas time, don't we? But it has nothing to do with your Christmas tree or what's on the outside of your house. It is not a light, it is the light that has shone into the darkness and brought great hope. And remember, this is ultimately referring not just to the nation of Israel, but beyond. And the principle is this. In the big picture, sin has blinded the eyes of all men, blinded our spiritual eyes, deceived us. And we are all left in spiritual darkness with no ability to enlighten or save ourselves. But there is a light that has come the true light from God. And this light conquers the darkness and gives hope. Jesus has come with the knowledge of God and he has shone in the hearts of those who are in darkness and he has illumined the darkness and he is leading his people to God. That is the essence of verses one and two, announcing to those in darkness that light has come. Friends, have you seen this light? Have you come to the light of Jesus Christ? Have you embraced this light of the world? Have you recognized that Jesus is the only hope for a lost and sinful world? Have you recognized that he is the only hope for darkened sinners like yourself and like me? This is the announcement that there is a solution to the darkness of sin, and it is Jesus Christ. Moving on then to verses 3 through 5, we see the effect of the light. The effect of the light. What does this light do to those on whom it shines? What is the glorious light, the glorious result of this light? Well, in verse 3, Isaiah speaks directly to God the Father. And he says, you have multiplied the nations. The nation, singular. He's referring to the nation of Israel. And that is an important statement because 
Those of you that have been here for Genesis and seen what we've said with Abraham and the promise that God made to Abraham, you know God has promised to multiply the descendants of Israel. Right? And so in light of the in, in spite of the darkness, God has shown a light into his covenant people, and he has multiplied the nation. God puts a promise here that is in the context of the, the whole storyline of Scripture because God's promise was not just to build the nation of Israel, but that through the nation of Israel, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a prophecy of salvation through Christ, of the spread of the gospel from the Messiah to the ends of the earth. This is the storyline of Scripture from the curse in Genesis 3 and the promise of a deliverer in the future to the covenant with Abraham, to the introduction of Christ in the Gospels, to the offer of salvation to the Gentiles, to the second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation and the ultimate reversal of the curse of sin and the restoration of all things. All scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ as the great deliverer. And this promise in Isaiah then is a prophecy of the coming of Christ who will fulfill all of it. Who will fulfill his promises to Abraham and bring salvation light to the nations and ultimately restore all things to their intended state, free from sin and free from guilt. This is a glorious promise, is it not? That leads us to the next phrase of verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What is the effect of the light of Jesus Christ? What is the effect of the light of the gospel on those who have received that light? Joy. Rejoicing. This is the joy that comes from abundant provision. That's the phrase, as with the joy at the harvest. Abundant provision. And it is the joy that comes from victory in battle. That's the dividing the spoil part. It is the language of prosperity and security. What is it this world is seeking more than anything else? Prosperity and security. And what is it this world doesn't ever seem to be able to find? We live in the most prosperous and secure nation that possibly the world has ever seen. And how many how many of you feel like you are truly prosperous and secure today? And here is a prophecy of one who will come and shine perfect light into darkness and accomplish perfect prosperity and security. Those who are in the light experience an increase of gladness, an increase of joy, as those who have every spiritual need met and have every spiritual victory. Whatever has defeated you in the past, Whatever has held you back and held you down and defeated you has been defeated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Game over. 
In Christ, you can have fullness of joy. There is a deep bliss that belongs to all who have received this light of Christ in their souls. Christians, you know it, don't you? You know it. You've tasted of it. Are you living in light of that joy today? Does this joy characterize your life, Christian? Are you truly and deeply joyful, rejoicing in God, your Savior? Maybe you're among us today and you're not a Christian. You've never come to this point of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. This joy doesn't belong to you. You may be bewildered at what it is we're talking about in such a world of chaos or such a world of false security. And here we are talking about a security that's greater than that. And peace in the midst of a world of chaos. And you don't know what we're talking about, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, this joy can be yours too. But you will find it nowhere except in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Scripture calls you to taste and see that He is supremely good. And to understand you will find no real and lasting joy until you find it in Him. Verse 4 gives us another effect of the light, closely related to the joy. It says, For the yoke of His burden and the staff for His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. Referring back to that time when Israel was miraculously and gloriously delivered from their oppressors. But those words, yoke, burden, staff, rod, in this context are all terms that indicate a weight of oppression that rests on those who are in darkness. You see, we might challenge the idea of darkness and say, I have no problem navigating my bedroom in the pitch black. Maybe some of you do that on a regular basis so as not to wake up the other person sleeping in your room. I can navigate a dark room. I just have to feel my way around. I know where everything is. Yes. But that's not the extent of spiritual darkness. The extent of spiritual darkness is you're not only in the dark room, but you've been beaten down by a rod and you are under a weight of sin under which you cannot move. You're dead. You're hopeless. You're stuck. There is a heavy weight of sin that all who are unconverted carry, whether they know it or not. It is slavery. It is bondage to sin. But when one comes to the light of Christ, that burden is gloriously removed. Have you read Pilgrim's Progress before? That moment of conversion for Christian as he's on his way and that burden falls off his back and he rejoices with an exceedingly great joy. And Christians, you know this. Maybe you've experienced that sense of relief when you came to Christ. Do you remember? Think back to that moment when there was almost this, this immediate, in some ways even visible demonstrated sense of relief at the lifting of this burden off of your shoulders. That's something only Christ can do. But it is something He does completely. 
In John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus himself says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I put the wrong verse up there. Where's that? Anyway, I must have skipped one somewhere. Let's find it. All right. Anyway, whatever. Okay. I messed that up. So, oh well. All right. I'm going to just go for it because you're not going to get any of the rest of these. He's going to be off. I, I can't. Anyway. John 8.36 says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You don't just be free. You'll be free indeed. What do I mean by that? There's any number of ways in this world you can feel like you're free. But if your freedom has been granted to you by the world, it's not real freedom. Real freedom comes in Christ. That is a glorious and it is a relieving promise of true freedom. And every one of you who has come to the light of Christ knows this freedom. The weight of sin is broken. Do you feel the weight of sin? Have you felt the relief of the weight of sin? In verse 5, we move on and we see one more effect of the light. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's that talking about? On a spiritual and temporal level, it's talking about the same deliverance from oppression of sin that belongs to all believers that we just talked about. But it also takes this point a step further, and it speaks of a deliverance that is still to come. It speaks of finality and something that is so complete. It speaks of a, of a battle victory that is so complete that there will never be any need for weapons of war again. Every garment that saw the battle is gone. Every weapon of war is gone, rendered unnecessary. This points to the removal of the very presence of sin. It points to the restoration of all things in a new heaven and a new earth to their original state as it was in the Garden of Eden before sin ever tampered with the glory of God's creation. This verse speaks of a complete and final, once for all, eradication of sin and restoration of all things. And while it is still in the future, the language of this passage gives us the assurance that this is something that is so set in God's mind that it is as good as done. God has committed himself to bringing about a complete end to sin in every consequence of it, in every aspect of life. Friends, that includes you. That is your daily life. That is your relationships with other people. That is society as a whole. That is our relationship with God Himself. All of it, when Christ returns, will be free from the oppression of sin and made perfectly right at perfect peace forever. Friends, this is the great effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could you not rejoice in this? How could you not have a joy that supersedes every circumstance you have to face today or tomorrow or later this week? I know things might look bleak now. 
we constantly hear bad news. It's all bad news. And now we're afraid of every little sniffle. Have you noticed that? We're scared to death. We're, we're afraid of every little military move. We're, we're afraid of every little social uprising. We're afraid of every little disagreement. We don't even like to talk about sensitive things with those closest to us. Why? Because we're afraid. We're all afraid of everything. That's the world we live in. Things look bleak. We see constant news of earth-shaking crises everywhere we look. And on top of that, we struggle with our own sin day in and day out. You see, the truth is you and I don't need the headlines to make us feel unstable. All we have to do is look at our own hearts. And we feel pretty weak in this world. Things look pretty bad. But when we read passages like this, we take heart extremely. Because we realize once we were enemies of God, and now we are no longer. Once we were destined for His judgment, and now in Christ we are destined for His peace. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He will do it. It's as good as done, Christians. Rejoice. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he will lead you all the way safely home. That leads us to our final point. We started with the announcement of the light, which is that promise that deliverance from darkness is coming. And then we saw the effect of the light on those who receive it. And now verses 6 and 7 point us to the source of the light culminating in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it tells us a little something about what he is like. This is the climax of the passage, as you would expect. And it tells us where we are to turn to receive this light, where we find eternal light and hope. Look at verse 6. Here's the light. For to you is given a powerful conqueror a great military leader, one who will stand up and unify the world against all oppression and darkness. No, that's not what it says. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because of this child. The light that shines in the darkness is not a political agenda. It's not a political party. It's not a political candidate. It's not a social utopia. It's not an ideal or something to be pursued on ideological lines. It is not an abstract value. The light of the world is a person, a real person, who came to earth on a real mission, and really accomplished it. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next thing we learn about Jesus, this true light, is this. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Oh Lord, come quickly. This speaks of royal authority. 
He is the seat of government power. But this is not merely the authority of one sitting on a throne in Israel. The rest of Scripture speaks even bigger of this, speaks of divine authority and divine wisdom and divine power. In other words, this government is not just another government in the world. This is the government of the entire universe. All authority over all things rests on the shoulders of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. And he bears the responsibility of bringing to pass all the purposes of God, and he is capable and he will. Hebrews chapter 1 describes Jesus Christ as the one whom the Father appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he is he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We see that? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's it. He speaks. And listening to his voice, new life, the dead receive. Jesus Christ is able to deliver light in spiritual darkness because he is the sovereign God who is in charge of all things. And one day, he will complete what he has begun. And he will fulfill all that he has promised. And the rise of this spiritual light will be complete. We will see our King Jesus face to face. You, Christian, will look on his face. And all things will be made right. Now, verse 6 the rest of it describes the character of Jesus. What is he like? What are his characteristics? What is the nature of his work? When it speaks of his name, that's what it's talking about. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, or literally, a wonder of a counselor. Don't you wish you had a counselor like that working with you? Right? This speaks of his perfect knowledge and his infinite wisdom. His thoughts and his ways are so much higher above our own. You have never seen another counselor like Christ. He does not give bad advice. And he does not make bad decisions in the governing of his creation. He is incomprehensible. His wisdom and his knowledge are infallible. He has no need for advisors. He has no need for counselors. He has no need for a cabinet in his government. He knows all things perfectly, and so he does all things perfectly well. And so the wisest thing you could ever do is submit to him as your Lord and follow his wisdom in every facet of your life. You know you don't have it all figured out, and neither do I, and neither do your counselors. But Jesus does. He has it all figured out because he's written the whole story. And he has given you counsel and direction in his word. So seek him. Follow him. Trust him. He will not make any mistakes. The next thing we learn about Jesus, this true light, is that his name shall be called Mighty God. Mighty God. This Lord Jesus Christ is and always has been fully God. 
We already saw what Hebrews 1 says, but Colossians 1 also affirms that He is the exact nature of God Himself. Jesus Christ is God and nothing less. And this has to be true if His death on the cross in your place is going to be of any value to you. I cannot die in your place and save you from your sins, nor can anyone else in this world, but God can, and He did through Jesus Christ. He is without sin. His death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for sin on behalf of those who believe. And He is able to save because He is God. Hear this. He is able to save even the foulest of sinners who place their hope in Him. I'm just too bad. I've done too much. You don't know what I've done. Yeah. You might be right. But He does. And He is able to save even you. He is a mighty God. He is the mighty Savior. And the next thing we see is that His name shall be called Everlasting Father. Now that's not speaking of His relationship within the Trinity, that'd be heresy. But it does speak of His relationship to His people. To those who have the light of Jesus Christ, He is like an Everlasting Father to His children. What are the characteristics we think of when we think of a good father? Dads, don't insert your name here. What do we think of when we think of what makes up a good father? Well, I think of compassion, provision, protection, mercy, and much more. This is how Jesus relates to those who follow him. He is compassionate. He leads and He provides. He protects and He secures. He is merciful and forgiving. And notice how long these things will last. He is the everlasting Father. The eternal Father. If you are in Christ, you are eternally secure. No one can pluck you from His hands. No one can pluck you from His Father's hands. The everlasting love and security and provision, and guidance, and compassion, and mercy of God Almighty Himself rest on you forever, in every circumstance, through Jesus Christ. The next thing we see is that His name shall be called Prince of Peace, or the Prince who brings and accomplishes peace. Prince is another affirmation of His sovereign authority, and as the sovereign ruler, he brings peace to his people. And there are two aspects of this peace. Objectively, it is peace with God. Once in your sin, you were at war with God and he was at war with you. But now in Christ, you are at peace with God. What a thought. That God is at peace with you if you are in Christ. Once His wrath rested on you, now His mercy and grace rest on you in Christ. But then there's a subjective peace. It's not just the peace of God, or it's not just peace with God, but it is the peace of God ruling in your life. For those who are in Christ, there is a certain stillness of spirit, isn't there? A certain calmness of heart, even in the chaos of the world in which we live. Whatever 
trials or temptations we face, there is something in us that says all will be well. It's going to be okay, Christian. One who has the peace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ is able to rest. Scripture calls us to be anxious for nothing because we can cast our cares on Him. We can let our requests be made known to Him. In spite of our circumstances, there is this inward peace that God's people have in Christ. We know there is coming a day when beyond even our current circumstances, all things, our our circumstances, our situation in this world will be at perfect peace when Christ returns. Your heart may be at peace now and your circumstances may not be, but there will come a point when all of it will be if you are in Christ. But my friends, this peace is only available by faith in Christ alone. Because if God is still at war with you, your future is not peace. But in Christ it is. Now as we move into chapter or verse 7, we see not just the character of Christ, but we also see the nature of his rule. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That verse tells us that the kingdom of Christ is an eternal and increasing kingdom. In fulfillment of his promises throughout the Old Testament, and it is a kingdom that is marked by peace, justice, and righteousness. With King Jesus on the throne, there is no impeachment. There are no recall elections. There are no scandals. He will not wear out his welcome. There is no end to the increase of his government, nor of his peace and justice and righteousness. It is a perfect and eternal kingdom that belongs to all who have found the light of Jesus Christ. And then this passage, this prophecy, finishes with some pretty powerful words. Look at it in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's God's stamp of approval, thundering down from heaven and, and shaking the earth with this promise that God himself has staked his character and reputation on it. It will be done. He is firmly and immovably resolved. And he will bring this whole passage to its complete and final fulfillment. It is so sure it is as good as done. And 700 years after this prophecy was spoken, on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up his voice as he breathed his last. He said, what? It is finished. The strife is over. The battle is won. Christ is victorious. One day he will bring it all to its perfect completion when he returns to the earth. The unrighteous will be judged, and we who are in Christ will be with him forever. All will be made right through the light of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this passage is a prophecy of salvation from sin through him. 
His birth in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago was the dawning of that light. We don't celebrate the birth of Christ because it's a cool sentimental story about this young woman who traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem to have this baby in a stable. And well, This is the story of the dawning of salvation light that saves people from their sin. So take your smartphone and throw it in the trash and shut off the stupid commercials because they have no clue what Christmas is about. But you do. This is what it's about. Christians, what makes the first advent of Christ so glorious is that we know it confirms his second advent. And this second coming of Christ is something we look forward to with great anticipation. And this prophecy gives us hope and it gives us security through the struggles and the sufferings that we face in this world at this time. We are not fearful people though we might be a suffering people. And as we go through this Christmas season, Christians, I urge you, remember the sure promises of God. Remember the big picture. Remember the hope that you have in Christ. You have been saved from the darkness of sin and brought into the light of His salvation. So rejoice, because this passage describes your future. And if you're among us today and you are not a Christian, examine your heart and consider what you've heard today. This passage calls you to turn from your sin, to turn from your spiritual darkness, and to face the light of Jesus Christ. If you have not repented of your sin, if you haven't believed on Him, then you are currently in spiritual darkness. You might know a lot of facts about the Bible, but your eyes are closed because of sin. And your life without Christ is eternal darkness. And it will culminate in eternal judgment where you will be cast away from the Lord forever. But it doesn't have to be that way. There is a light that has shined into the darkness. And all who are in that light are rescued from sin and its eternal consequences. So turn from your darkness. Turn from your sin and look to the light of Jesus Christ. There you will find mercy and you will find rest and you will find peace, and you will find joy, because you will find eternal salvation. Jesus himself, who is this light, whose birth we celebrate, himself has said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The yoke has been broken, but he says, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Don't you want rest for your souls today? Don't you want to understand what Christmas is all about, really? Don't you want the peace that only Christ can provide? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the coming of Christ